The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. I want to talk about uh, time. To do that, I want to turn to uh, the Bible. And for those of you familiar with the wisdom literature in the Bible, wisdom literature is uh, found roughly in the middle somewhere. The Psalms, the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Proverbs. The book of Ecclesiastes is a fascinating book. It's like an existentialist piece of literature. It's about the vanity and futility of human life. Under the sun, when lived without reference to God, has some fascinating things to say. Not the sort of book you perhaps want to read too much before bed, but when you are in the mood to cope with some of the powerful statements about the meaninglessness of life outside of the knowledge of and relationship to God. I believe the traditional authorship is correct, but it's King Solomon who wrote this, and I want to read to you from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, perhaps familiar words to some of you. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 through 15. To everything there is a season A time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is a gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which has already been and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. We're going to come to some of those thoughts in a moment, but the Bible here is reminding us of what we might call an existential reality. That is a reality that confronts us every day of our existence, the reality of passing moments. And we could add many different events and moments to uh, that list that we've experienced in our own lives. We've all been born, and although there are some philosophers that have questioned whether they exist, most of us believe we are here, in fact, and a moment will come when we will die. The ultimate statistic, one out of one dies. Look at your wristwatch for a moment if you've got one on. Maybe it's digital and you just see these ticking digits. Maybe it's an analog watch and you can see the hand ticking past. Time is the succession of events. 
What is this thing we call time? On average, worldwide, the following things happen in a second. Look at a second on your watch for a moment. 4.5 cars are manufactured. 2,000 square meters of forest is wiped out. Three people are born. 1.5 people die. That's tricky to work out, but it's just an average. 12.6 million cubic meters of water fall as precipitation. 3.2 million of that falls on dry land. In a second, Concorde covers 611 meters when it was flying, at least. Space shuttle flies 7.7 kilometers. On its orbit around the sun, our planet travels 30 kilometers in a second. 2.4 million red blood cells are produced in our bone marrow. Our lungs require 200 cubic volume of air every second. Four billion impulses are exchanged between the cortical hemispheres of our brain, perhaps a few less for some of us. A lot happens in one second, every day. Remember going to, um, I think it was the IMAX uh, cinema in Niagara Falls for about the seventh time the other week with yet another guest visiting Canada since we've moved. And uh, seeing the, uh, the show about the human body, explaining all that happens during the short passage of time, just overnight, something like men grow 20 feet of facial hair. Incredible. What we call time and the things that happen in time and this succession of events we call time and we've learned to measure time. We've learned to measure it in tiny amounts. So you watch the 100-meter sprint and it's down to the thousandths of a second, hundredths of a second. We've even got the atomic clock. can measure time with absolute precision. And then the large quantities that we call centuries and millennia and light years. Yet the reality of time for our lives is actually quite troubling. Time seems to pursue us and hunt us down. Some of us are more conscious of that than others as the years pass. And some people describe time as something of a, of a predator that's stalking you through life. It seems that time is running out, or rather we are gradually passing out of this world of time. Now, it's true, I admit, that the reality of this hits us more when we're older. I remember being 15 and thinking my 20th birthday would never come, or my 18th birthday for that matter. I remember being 21 and thinking 30 was a millennia away. It would never come. A few weeks ago, I experienced that 30th birthday. Strange feeling to pass out of one's 20s, never to see them again. It all seems like yesterday. and I remember cutting the umbilical cord as my daughter emerged, and she's already two years old. I don't know where the time's gone, and she's just two. And I talked to my parents and my grandparents, as I've only got one grandparent still alive. They talk about how their marriage seems just like last week. You've heard the expression, the, the watched pot never boils, have you? The subjective experience of time, how something is going incredibly quickly, that romantic evening with the uh, person that you love or are courting and hoping that you're going to encourage to love you, and then standing in front of that kettle, which seems to boil so much slower here in Canada because the voltage is lower. <laughs> Although I know you don't drink as much tea as we do. 
But when we reflect on time, whether we're teenagers or pensioners, it still has the same effect if we take the time to think about it. When I was a child, I would sometimes sit and think about time. And I would think about eternity. I remember sitting in the library one day, I was a strange child, and uh, thinking about eternity. What was it? What is it? How can something never end? I don't understand that. How can God have no beginning and no end? And I would think about this sometimes so hard until my mind went blank. It was, I was scared and I kind of shake myself out of it. It was as though I was spinning around in one of those revolving doors in a void. I don't know whether you're a Star Trek fan, but for my 30th birthday, I asked my wife to get me four seasons of Star Trek Next Generation on DVD. Please don't judge me by that. It's just me, you know. Some people are into it, some people aren't. But um, let me just give you one illustration from Star Trek, if you will allow me to. The most popular syndicated television series in the history of television as one Harvard professor has called it, the most cerebral show on television. Reached its zenith, I believe, in Star Trek The Next Generation, but we won't go into that. I don't know whether you saw the Star Trek movie Generations. That was the first one with the Captain Picard, the handsome, bald-headed Shakespearean actor, and uh, the new crew, Commander Data, etc. And there's this fascinating story, or at least to me it was fascinating, about a ribbon, a, a temporal ribbon in space, which they called the Nexus, which was traveling through space, and anybody who could enter the Nexus or was caught up in this energy ribbon was somehow transported into a reality where time had no meaning. The phenomena could read your thoughts, and so in this Nexus you would be placed in a context that was the the world that you only dreamed about living in, a kind of heaven, if you like, a sort of heaven concept And in one portion of the dialogue, Captain Picard is talking to the villain called Sorin, who is going to destroy a star and therefore destroy many lives just to get back into this nexus which he'd been dragged from. And he describes time in this conversation, this villain, as a predator. He says that the predator is stalking you and it's coming to make the kill, but in the nexus he says, time has no meaning there, the predator has no teeth. And in that film, they picked up on one of the most important things about being human, the fact that we are caught in finite lives in a world that has started somewhere, is going to end somewhere, and the passage we call time, and everything that we do in this small period of time that we have, none of us knowing how much we've got, determines everything about eternity, if there is one. An interesting, if not a frightening thought picks up on this great theme of the origin, the meaning and purpose, and the end of time. And those are the three things I just want to pick up on briefly. First of all, the origin of time. The English Chambers Dictionary defines time as the continuous passing and succession of minutes, days, and years, which actually tells us absolutely nothing about what time is at all. It just tells us how we measure it, that we call it. Minutes and hours and years. But what are minutes, hours and years? Well, Augustine, the early church father, said this. He says, what is time? If no one asks me, I know. But if any person should require me to tell him, I can't. We don't really think about it that often, so we think we know what time is, but we don't. 
It's difficult to contemplate. We are overwhelmed when we reflect on this by a sense of the weakness of human intelligence, or at least we should be. Albert Einstein was man enough to admit that looking at the universe and these relationships and, of course, time was of a great importance to Einstein in his theories, uh, his physical theories, his theoretical physical theories for the universe. He said that uh, when we, in my paraphrase, in looking at the universe, we're confronted with a mind and intelligence that's far beyond the capacity of the human mind to grasp. And I think time is one of those areas We feel overwhelmed by it. We can't put it into words. And time appears like a riddle, a mystery. Of course, we're fascinated with films about time and time travel. I know my wife was very keen on uh, Michael J. Fox, Back to the Future, and those series of films there back in the 80s, if you remember that period. Time travel fascinates uh, the science fiction writers. But from where did time originate? Now, I know that you've probably been to college or been to school or been to university, and you've been told, well, it's the Big Bang, isn't it? The Big Bang hypothesis. You see, there was this quantum fluctuation of a vacuum, and all of a sudden, the universe appeared. It came about. That's the origin of time. But unfortunately, it doesn't have any explanatory power to tell us about the origin of the space-time continuum, because these same scientists say that all known laws of physics break down at the quantum singularity. In other words, we haven't got a clue what happened at the beginning of the universe. And anything we do talk about is pure guesswork. And now, with Einstein's theory of the constancy of the speed of light in a vacuum up for review, because somebody's looked down an even bigger telescope and thinks he may not have been right, where will science be tomorrow? The origin of time is really significant for all of us because it's not until we understand the origin of time that we can begin to think about its purpose and its meaning for us as human beings, as people. When I wrote this talk I was, uh, a few months ago, I was still living in Oxford, and I remember as I was um, trying to conclude the Oxford clock struck five, my study was opposite Christchurch College, and one of the things I do miss about England was riding my bike along the River Thames to my office, to my study, Now I sit on the 404 in my car. But if all is finally random and meaningless, as some of these scientists and philosophers want to tell us, then we may just kill time and waste it because that's what time is doing to us. It's just killing us. You see, people talk about killing time, don't they? Now, let's kill some time. What should we do? Well, no, time is killing me, actually. It's the other way around. Let me read you a prose poem that I wrote at the beginning of one of the chapters on science in my book, once upon a point of infinite density, nothing that was something went boom, then there was everything. Everything eventually named something matter, the tragic character in our story. Sadly, matter had no mind, yet this makes our tale all the more amazing. Now, matter had only one companion, the hero of our fable, a mysterious stranger of unknown origin called Chance. Chance, though blind, was a brilliant artist, and chance taught mindless matter to paint, and paint our pupil did. Matter painted a universe from center to rim on the canvas of a vacuum, and lo, innumerable galaxies emerged filled with infinite wonders, beauty, order, and life. The inspired brushstrokes of ignorant matter, guided by the hands of blind chance, created together a cosmic masterpiece. But as matter and chance were working away, they failed to spot our villain called time. Time crept in unnoticed back at the boom and was extremely wound up about being stirred from his sleep. Time determined there and then to wind down again, 
and thus rub the masterpiece out as soon as he got hold of that chance. Chance being blind didn't see time coming and mindless matter was helpless to intervene. Now time ruins the painting little by little and brags that by chance it's just a matter of time before the canvas is blank and the boom will swoon and everything that was something will be nothing again. Once more upon a pointless point of infinite nothingness with no time for chance to matter anymore. Thank you. Now that is one view. One view of the origin and end of this so-called space-time continuum that we live in. But the Christian message found in the Bible offers something very different to this. And to me, it's a view that is far more compelling, a view that sits well with my intuitive faculty, and it seems to bear much greater correspondence with the world in which I live. Where should we look to then for the origin and the meaning of this time? Do we look to the physics textbooks? Do we look to the philosophers? Well, as helpful as some of their observations are, I don't think they take us far enough. As I say, there are many today who agree in the scientific community that time has not always been there, that the universe hasn't always been there, that it had a beginning. It began. It started. This wasn't always believed 50 years ago. Oscillating model of the universe, steady state model of the universe. Now, it's believed, generally speaking, by most cosmologists that the universe did have a beginning, and time, therefore, had a beginning. And yet, as the ancient Greek philosophers said, from nothing comes nothing. From nothing, you can't get anything. From non-life, you don't get life. From no information, you don't get information. The universe doesn't create itself. Otherwise, it would need to exist before it existed, which is a contradiction. The Bible begins instead in this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What a simple and yet sublime statement. And one that cannot be beaten. It can't be matched. In the beginning, God, and there is no cosmological argument or ontological argument or teleological argument attached. It's just stated. And if you didn't know what any of those arguments are, you're not missing too much. In the beginning, we could paraphrase it, was infinite information calling the space-time continuum into existence. That might sit slightly better with the scientists. But time is not an eternal cycle. It had a beginning. It will have an end. It's true of the world we live in. Things are running down. In fact, our scientific friends call this entropy. Everything's running down. You ever looked in the mirror and noticed things are running down? Not getting better, generally speaking. The hairs start to go gray. The skin starts to dry out. Looking at my hands the other day, I thought, also that loose skin around my knuckles? I've never noticed that before. About uh, six months after the birth of my first daughter, I was combing my hair in the mirror. Well, actually, I was just sort of, you know, doing that with it. We don't comb my hair anymore, do we? Um, I thought, what's that glint? I see. And I noticed two white hairs has appeared on the side of my head. I didn't have the courage to pull them out. It might hurt, so I've left them there. Time isn't this eternal cycle. And yet the creation all around of us, it speaks to me at least, of the intricacy and design of an incredible mind. The complexity, the order. I know that's a form of design argument. I know it's shot through with 
Christian presuppositions, but nonetheless I put it to you. As William Blake, the poet, once powerfully asked, I remember even from school, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? You only need to visit Toronto Zoo. The author of the space-time universe, the creator of the heaven and earth, according to the Bible, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 John 1, following. It's far more reasonable to me to believe that the tiger, as well as the universe itself, was shaped by the creator of the universe, God himself, an infinite mind. Of course, they're running into problems now, the scientists, because of the genetic revolution and things. And Sir Francis Crick, I believe, now thinks that aliens brought life to Earth because he can't have an answer for the origin of life. Dr. Paul Davies, one of the world's leading physicists, believes now that the universe is a quantum computer of some sort to generate the information. We just don't want to have God in the picture because he has moral requirements of us and that doesn't sit so comfortably. But in the Bible, Jesus himself, who is the center of Scripture, talked about creation. He talked about the creation of the first man and the first woman. He said, before Abraham existed, I am. I am God. And you know how Christ demonstrated his divinity in one way? It's by exercising power over that creation. He walked on water. He turned water into wine. He raised people who were dead. He healed people who had leprosy. He opened people who had blind eyes. That man who was, uh, who was uh, interrogated by the Sanhedrin. Who made you like this? He says, well, this man, he touched me and told me to go and I think it was in that occasion, go and wash the mud off my eyes and I could see. Nobody since... The world began, he says, has opened the eyes of a man born blind. Only the creator could do that. As such, then, time itself belongs to the creator. Time belongs to God. And Jesus addresses this very issue when he says to us in Matthew 6, which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? I always remind myself of that when I'm feeling stressed. After a difficult day at work, I'm chewing things over, and I think, hang on a minute, what am I doing? Can I even extend my life a single hour by worrying about all of this? No. Psalmist said, all my days are written in your book before I was ever born. He knows the end from the beginning. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. Man cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We're not infinite, we're finite. That's the problem of philosophy, of course. Man doesn't know all the particulars, and so he doesn't know what the general is. He doesn't know what the unity is. So he becomes a skeptic. The problem of philosophy is the problem of the one and the many. How do they relate? How does the leaf relate to the tree? What is a tree, anyway? So the history of philosophy just moves around in one big circle because man is so limited. He doesn't know everything. He has to admit he doesn't know everything. That leaves him with uncertainty. That makes him a skeptic. If God is indeed, though, the source of time, it has a real meaning and a real destination. And so the Bible tells us 
in Psalm 90, verse 12. Very important thing. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Psalm 90, verse 12. Okay, my second point, very quickly, is the meaning and the purpose then of time. As English poet Steve Turner, he said this, these are the good old days, just wait and see. How true that is. These are the good old days. Before you know it, these will be the good old days. Looking at time from a perspective that excludes God in the book of Ecclesiastes, as I say, is a rather depressing thing. Much of our lives are spent trying to find something to do with the time that we rush through our lives trying to save. We're always in a hurry, we're always busy, we're always rushing around, desperately trying to save time, and then we don't know what to do with ourselves, and we've got the time. We think, how can I kill a few hours? When we look soberly at the meaning of our time, the lack of it is generally foremost in our thoughts, particularly once we pass the age of 30. So Walter Riley, another English commander from the homeland, as we've heard this evening, said this, even such is time which takes in trust our youth, our joys, and all we have, and pays us back with age and dust, who in the dark and silent grave, and we have wandered all our ways, shuts up the story of our days. Is that it? So we chase around, and we pursue a career, and we do this, and we do that, and it all just closes up. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Well, the Bible doesn't actually reject that thought of the poet, but it says more. It accepts that, yes, but it says, no, there's more. Jesus did affirm heaven and earth will pass away. The apostle Paul affirms this world in its present form is passing away. History as we know it is working towards an end. Because human beings go from dust to dust because we have fallen from the estate in which God created us and made us to live in. And we're alienated from God. We're in rebellion against God. We can't lend the time. We can't skip it. We can't invest it to gain more. We can't freeze ourselves even for another time. We can't travel through it. But if our time is a gift from God, then there's two things that become true that move beyond what that poet says. Firstly, our time has significance and purpose, real significance, beyond physical death. And secondly, if God is the author, then time has a new destination, eternity. So with that biblical origin of time in mind, we can begin to see why our time has real importance and significance. That what you do with your time, what I do with my time, matters to God. It not only matters to other people, which it does, it matters to God. So many of us speak very selfishly about our time, don't we? I'm just trying to get some time on my own. Stop encroaching on my time. I need my space and time. Now, of course, I know what we mean, but it isn't actually our time. I'll do what I want with my life, I hear people say. I heard myself say it a few years ago. My life, my time, is it? We know we're going to be here tomorrow, do we? We know the sun's going to rise tomorrow, do we? No, we don't. We don't. There are a lot of amazing events in history as you look at it. Some that stick out in my mind would be the, uh, the Reformation and the Renaissance of 1521 and then the first heart transplant in 1967, the moon landings in 69, England winning the World Cup in 66, and then again in 2004 in the rugby, and perhaps you would add uh, 
the uh, Winter Olympics of what year was it? 2002. All of these seem to mark what we would call a hiatus in history. Moments that stand out to us that we remember and we think about and we reflect on. People talk about where they were, for example, when JFK died or when Diana, Princess of Wales, died. But there's one moment in history which stands out above all of those, in fact, from which all the others derive their date, despite what popular journalists want to call CE or common era. It is, in fact, AD, which is Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. And that is what was announced in Hebrews 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets in many times and in various ways, but now at last he has spoken to us by his Son. Or, as the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 4, verse 4, when the right time came, God sent forth his Son. I want to suggest to you that that is the most crucial moment in the history of humanity. The time that eternity and time collided in the person of Christ. The infinite and the finite collided. The divine and the human collided in the God-man born of a virgin. The creator of time, the Lord of eternity, became a human being. Now, does that strike you as incredible, or is it just me? He became a human being, and time, history, would never be the same again, and it hasn't. Everybody thinks Jesus is long finished and done with in popular Canadian culture, and all of a sudden, a Hollywood hero brings out a film, and everybody's publishing something about it. And the so-called privatized Christianity suddenly becomes a public matter for everybody who's got an opinion. Jesus' ministry, when he comes and time and eternity collide, focuses on people's relationship with God and he explains the way we are to live in time because it affects our present and also our eternity. I don't know whether you remember the box office hit Gladiator, which I watched numerous times because I thought it was a great film. And uh, one moment that stood out to me there was when at the beginning of the film in some of the wars in Germania that the Romans were conducting, he lines up his cavalry... And he makes a speech to the cavalry before they ride in, and he says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. Of course, he was thinking of the Elysium fields of uh, Roman mythology. But nonetheless, the point is true. What we do in life does affect and echo in eternity, not just our life now, but our future life. It becomes of infinite importance. That is why time becomes so crucial. Your decisions, your actions, your activity as a human being, every day of your life, is not just you wasting time or killing time or having some time to yourself. Your time is of infinite importance to God. He alone knows how much you have. He alone knows how much he has given you. Most of all, it's crucial that we decide how to respond to God and his son, Jesus Christ, in time. For the time for everything under heaven, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, includes the time to respond to the call of God. Because I believe at some point in every person's life, they hear a call from heaven. There is a time to hear God. That's why scripture says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I won't uh, turn there because we haven't got the time, but let me 
refresh your memory about a parable Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12 about the rich fool. A man basically has become a very successful businessman, very successful, so much so that he has prospered to the point where he needs to build bigger barns to store all his crops. So in today's terms, that would be like a man building yet another huge warehouse to store all his goods. And he says to himself, Jesus says, uh, well, look, I've set myself up beautifully for my retirement. Fantastic. Uh, I'll just build myself a bigger warehouse, and now I can live at ease. I'll rest on my laurels. I'll party. I'll eat, drink, and be merry. I will live a hedonistic lifestyle and do what I want to do. I've earned it. I've deserved it. Jesus says that God spoke that night and said, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. And then whose will all of this be? Who will it belong to? And so it is, Jesus says, with those who are rich towards themselves in this life, but not rich towards God, who invest here in life, but never invest in eternity. They are fools. It's so easy to ignore that issue and to live selfishly and ignore and spurn God as this man did, but it's a fatal error for any of us to presume upon time. This is something I do try and remind myself of on a regular basis. You know, we have that expression, we've got all the time in the world. We don't have all the time in the world. He thought his time was his own. He thought it belonged to him. He was mistaken. He was rich towards himself with his wealth, with his time, with his pleasures on earth, but he was spiritually impoverished for eternity. He wasn't ready for what Shakespeare called the undiscovered country. Time had made the kill and he was unprepared. But the message that Christ brings is one of life now and beyond time into eternity. Yes, Jesus did say heaven and earth will pass away, but he did add this. My words will never pass away. Never. They go on forever. What are some of these words? Well, among the most important that Jesus utters in the New Testament, he said this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Yes, we're going to die. The question is, will we live again? Where is our soul going? As the question Jesus raised in Chapter 12. Now, I'm not just talking about pie in the sky when you die. I'm talking about steak on the plate while you wait as well. You know, Christianity is not a glorified insurance policy just in case God's out there. That's the whole point of what I'm saying tonight, is that what we do in time now matters, and it's of infinite importance because of the time belonging to God, because of its origin, because of the purpose and meaning it takes on, because it belongs to God, and because that leads on to life eternal. What is it that Jesus says we are to believe about him? Well, Scripture tells us, and let me rehearse this for you, that Christ went to the cross, that we could find pardon and forgiveness for our failures in time, so that our consciences could be cleansed and washed, the Apostle Paul tells us, for eternity. For time, yes, but for eternity, by putting our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Lord of the universe, who was raised to life again. The Bible tells us then that this is the most important, the most significant decision that we can ever make. The author of time, the one who will bring 
the creation to consummation. Biblical plot line, which I believe is the truth about the universe and the truth about the world, is a full orb message. It's a unity. Paradise lost, paradise regained. But that is the story of the world. And the Creator will bring about a consummation. The Apostle Paul puts it like this, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me close with this. The British dramatist Tom Stoppard noted, eternity is a terrible thought. I mean, where's it all going to end? It is ironic, isn't it? That reveals a very, very common misunderstanding about eternity because God doesn't run by the atomic clock. When many of us conceive of eternity, what we think of is this very, very long conveyor belt like at Chicago O'Hare Airport, which seems to go on forever, or at Heathrow. Only this one, you never get to the terminal. You just sort of stay on it. It's just like one long line. It's kind of how we think about it, just time stretched out. But God, of course, is not bound by the space-time world as we know it. He created it. He's outside of it. There's no such thing really as there and then to God, only here and now. He doesn't live in our time axis. He sees the rolling ages at a glance. You know, even if you could travel to a star a thousand light years away and look through a very powerful telescope, what would you observe back on Earth? Well, I tell you, you would observe the events of a thousand years ago. In your imagination, you can travel from star to star instantly. You could view all of history as one event. Contemporaneously, it's a bit of a mouthful. In our imagination. And God, that's the closest we can get to having a God perspective, sees it all stretched out. Not as an infinite conveyor belt. That's not what eternal life is. It is life that will never end. But eternal life is a new quality of life primarily, not just a new length of time. God has set eternity in the human heart. But we can't see what God has done from beginning to end. We're limited at this point. But heaven, the glories of heaven, the glories of eternity, is not just a time that goes on. But, I mean, imagine living forever, stranded on an asteroid floating through space. Would that be a pleasurable experience? Is this not the length of time itself that makes heaven heaven. It's the quality of life. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life. Now, we think the gift is the, the length of time, don't we? We think the gift of God is eternal life means that God's giving us the eternal life as a gift. But actually, the, that's wrong punctuation. The gift of God is eternal life. God is the gift. And when we have God, we have life. That's why Scripture says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. It's having relationship with God that gives us life in Christ Jesus. Not just being given a chunk of time that isn't going to end. It's a new quality. And in that place, the book of Revelation says, there will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. There will no longer be any curse. Paul tells us in Romans 8, creation itself groans, awaiting our adoption as sons, the redemption 
of our bodies. There'll be no broken hearts, and finally we will all realize the irrelevance of death. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? It's a time to search. It's an opportunity for all of us. Can I encourage you to use your time wisely, the short time that we have here, and to invest that time in eternity? If I can shamelessly plug my own book, Searching for Truth, which in the UK, with a different publisher, is called A Time to Search. I deal with the Christian worldview from creation through to the final judgment and the flow of the Christian worldview. And uh, it's a, effectively an apologetic for Christianity, so it's for the seeker, but also for the Christian to equip themselves to understand the Christian worldview so they understand what it is that we're sharing, explaining, and defending. I encourage you to have a look at that. Thank you very much for your time tonight, which is in fact God's time, of course, but thank you for sharing it with me, and uh, I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.